0: Welcome back to Unspoken, Unsung, a podcast that celebrates the accomplishments and lives of people you may pass in the street every day, never knowing how their achievements and life stories could inform and inspire you. This episode of Unspoken Unsung is a masterclass in what it means to be an artist, an actor, a musician, a writer, or a person engaged in a career that requires one to defy the odds, all for the sake of passion for the calling itself. Lorraine Devin Welke discovered her artistic calling at an early age. She's an accomplished singer, songwriter, actor, and screenwriter. She's a photographer. Lorraine has written columns for the Huffington Post, and since 2014, she's published three acclaimed novels and a short story. I learned a lot in this conversation. Here's Lorraine Devon
1: Wilkie.
0: Lorraine Devon Wilkie, what a pleasure. Welcome. Well,
1: thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Dan Danner.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I see that you're third of 11 children. That's amazing. That is true. Tell me about your your parents and your family.
1: Um, You know, I think being a member of a very large family, especially if you're one of the older kids, especially if you're one of the older girls, is kind of a a life-impacting experience because from a very young age on, you kind of become a little mommy to a lot of younger siblings, which is certainly true in the case of our family. Um, which I think, you know, there's good and bad to that. I mean, I learned a lot about responsibility and changing diapers and making meals and taking care of little kids. Uh, but I also found that I was very uh, anxious and restless to leave home as soon as I could to kind of create my own life because I pretty much felt like I was being a responsible adult probably years before I should have been. But that's the way it is with big families. My parents are both... Chicago born and raised and uh, moved when I was a little kid to a tiny little farm town in Illinois. I mean, literally tiny, like 350 people when we moved there. And I don't mm-hmm. think it was a whole lot bigger when we moved out when I was in high school. And so I had this very bucolic uh, childhood in this tiny little farm town. I was raised Catholic. My parents were fairly uh, Fairly involved Catholics. I mean, it was your basic strict Catholic upbringing, which I, of course, resisted madly. And um, and then when I was in high school, we moved a little further south, closer to Chicago, to a little town named Crystal Lake, where I did my high school years. And then I went to college at the University of Illinois in Champaign Urbana. And you know, I think um, being one of eleven, to go back to your question, I think it 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 informs pretty much everything about you, because all of us are products of our childhoods and how we were dealt with by our parents, the amount of one-on-one or the lack of one-on-one. And I think when you grow up in a family that large, um, you become independent very quickly because you have no choice. You know, you Mm -hmm. you don't have that parent, like I'm a mother of one child and, you know, that child got my undiluted attention from minute one till he moved out and he still gets a lot of attention because he's my one child. Well, when you're one of 11, you just don't get that. And so there's this interesting developmental facility that happens where you become very independent and very self-sustaining, which is, you know, good and bad. It's got good and bad to both. And so, you know, I crashed into my adult life um, pretty uh, wildly. My little, I left home between my freshman and sophomore years of college and just kind of went madly about my life at that point. I say madly because, you know, it was the seventies. It was a crazy time in our culture. I was very deeply involved in music, even through high school and theater. So everything I did was very creative and all the ancillary cultural aspects of the creative world were very much a part of my life. You know, just a lot of, uh, Colorful people, a lot of colorful experiences. I was not living a conventional life. I was on the road with a rock band for about three years def, you know, during my college years, and actually that ended up pulling me out of college and sending me on the road, which is how I ended up in Los Angeles.
0: How did your, your choice of art and music, how did that sit with the family?
1: Well, it was a mixed bag because my parents were both very interested in the arts and we were young i mean one of the really great things they did for us was they imbued our lives with creative artistic things my father we we didn't have a tv for a good part of my childhood my father would go into the city into chicago to the library and bring home boxes and boxes of books that we could keep for months at a time and so Mm -hmm. we were all voracious readers we we put on little plays. We did music. My parents were very creative. They would go see musicals in downtown Chicago and then they would come home and my father would get the record of the soundtrack and the book and he would read from the book and then play the songs where they came in the story. And it was a really magical introduction into the creative arts. So So they were very, very pivotal in making those a part of our lives. But I think, conversely, my father also kind of expected us to just do them as a hobby because one of my younger brothers always tells me that I ruined it for them because when I left home to go be a theater major and then left school to be in a rock and roll band, my father kind of said, that's enough of pursuing creative careers. And uh, he wanted my brothers (laughs) to do something else altogether. So, I think it was kind of a, you know, I think they had a love hate relationship with it. They loved the doing of it. And, and probably just from a parental point of view, they were concerned that it's a career that's not a very predictable one, which is true. So, they were always, my father was particularly very worried about my choices um, when I leapt into my life and probably was worried about those till the day he died because he was a frustrated writer himself and he. He pursued it somewhat, but never had any success at it. And he supported me as a writer, but I think he also knew that it was a very difficult road to go down in terms of financial security or, you know, any kind of, you know, market success, which I understand. As a parent, I was thrilled when my son went into the sciences, to be honest with you, because I thought I I knew that he would have an easier road in terms of creating a secure life, which he, he is and has the arts are difficult. So, you know, my parents kind of did a funny thing of making it such a part of our lives. And at the same time, uh, being fearful of our pursuit of them as adults. So it's an interesting mixed bag. Was
0: your family pretty much as a, an older child. In other words, with 11, you don't get a clear middle child section. I don't think.
1: No, I don't think so either. No, you know, I think, um, well, everybody in the family is so different. You know, there's, there's different types of people, both physically and emotionally and sensibilities. You know, there's some people that are very uh, external, very extroverted, very creative. There are some people that are very quiet, and introspective. And um, so it, it's an interesting mixed bag. I don't know, you know, how that whole middle child thing plays out, like you said, when you've got that many people. I don't think, it, I don't <laughs> think the formulas work as well.
0: Well what I've heard about being a middle child is that they tend to be sociable, mm-hmm. faithful in the relationships and good at relating to both older and younger people. You know, which
1: Yeah. Well I, I think, you know, certainly that's true of me and as a third child of eleven, I'm not really a middle child, but our family kind of broke down into little families within the family. My two older sisters and I were considered one family. And then I had three brothers who were considered another family. And then I had four, two boys, two girls that were a third family. And the last family was my youngest sister. And kind of within those increments, there's a lot of different traits and proclivities that are interesting and different amongst those four families i mean so i guess in my family which would be my two older sisters and i i was the youngest of the three and my second oldest sister was the middle child of that family so i don't know you know i don't know how any of that plays out you know i yeah it's too hard to say when you've got that many people to (laughs) consider
0: yeah so, did you do well in school when you were young? I would imagine you were probably pretty strong in language and social yeah. studies, art and music, and like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I was a good student. Um, I I liked school. I liked doing well. I had a pretty strong impulse toward personal best always. Um, I think one of the things that that you know kind of evolved out of being a member of such a large family is that you feel a very strong impulse to make your mark because I would say one of the negatives of a large family is there's sort of a generic perspective. You know, my father, I actually referenced this in my first book. I gave it to the father, the fictional father I created, this line where I would say to my dad, I love you, dad, and he would say, I love all my kids. And that always bothered me because I, and finally, when I was much, much older and shortly before he died, he said that to me and I said, dad, don't say that. Just say, I love you back. I'm not interested in whether you love all my brothers and sisters and me. I know you do. But when I say I love you, give me the respect of my individuality. And he was kind of chagrined and always did after that. But it was like his, his attempt to be even handed with all of his children somehow resulted in him generically responding to us, which was difficult for me, because I I think what it did was it compelled me always to be leaping up and down, waving my hand to say, notice me, you know, notice what I'm doing, notice what I'm becoming, notice what I am, which, of course, plays into being a performing artist, because, you know, there's a good part of being a performing artist, it's all about that, too, which is, you know, you can't really be a performing artist if you don't have some element of exhibitionism. (laughs) Um, But I think in school, I always wanted to excel because I wanted to prove that I, that I was noticeable, I guess would be a good way of putting it. So, yeah, but I did not, um, I didn't complete college. You know, like I said, I left school. I was a theater major. And I loved, I was in college for three, well, two and a half years, and I loved college. I had amazing experiences in college. But when I went on the road with this band, I was gone so much, and I was paying for my own college. So it became counterproductive because I was paying for things that I couldn't do because I was always gone. So I, I just stepped away thinking I would go back, and then I never did. And, you know, my parents didn't even know about that till much later. And they were so upset when they found out. And I was like, but, but, you know, I'm a theater major, I'm learning how to be a performer. And and that's kind of what I'm doing. So I'm sort of living my education, which was how I felt about it at the time. You know, looking back, Mm -hmm. should I have gone back? I don't know. You know, I, I toyed with the idea a few years ago, and then just kind of, I don't know, I'm not compelled. So um, my, my academic, I once had a person said to me, you're, you're a creative, you're not an academic, and I, I suppose there's some truth to that. I'm not compelled to do uh, courses and go to school, and I have many friends and family who love going to school. I, I loved when I was at school, but I have no compunction to go back.
0: Were your creative um, skills apparent when you were in grade school?
1: Yeah, you know, I was in the school choir, and um, it was a tiny, tiny little Catholic school, so there wasn't a lot that went on creatively other than the church choir. But I was a part of that, and that was really uh, something I loved doing. It didn't. I didn't really get into the creative world until high school, um, when I started being in school plays and school musicals and school talent shows and stuff like that. You know, editing the school literary magazine and stuff like that. So that sort of didn't happen until high school.
0: Mm -hmm. So as, as close as you were to Chicago, Mm -hmm. Chicago was such a, I mean, you know, second city and all the different things, Chicago music scene, all that. Um, It must've been fertile ground.
1: It was. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Chicago when I was in my band and um, we, we did events up there and, you know, just spent a lot of time being in Chicago. I loved Chicago. I love Chicago still. Um, it, it's, um, it is a very fertile city creatively, both in the the theatrical arts and music and probably every other art form. And I, I loved the energy of urbanity, you know, of urban life of, you know, growing, having been born there and living the first few years of my life there, I think it sort of imprinted on me this, uh, Tremendous affection for urban energy, and my grandmother lived mm. there, continued to live there even after my parents moved us into the farm world um, and I would often spend time with my grandmother in the city and was always very energized and excited by it and so you know i I knew that I wasn't going to stay in any i'm not I'm not driven to stay in small town environments I was always really, really drawn to spend time in Chicago. And then, you know, and then ultimately I moved west to LA because the Midwestern weather was more than I could bear. And I wanted to be in LA. I'd I'd never been there until I moved there, but I was just drawn there. I, you know, I wanted to be part of the creative community and I wanted to be part of the, what I felt was this really powerful culture of personal freedom and creative freedom that, Wasn't quite happening in the Midwest at that time. It may be now, but it certainly wasn't then. And so I was very drawn to move west where I felt like the greatest gift Los Angeles gave to me and to anyone who ever came here was permission to be exactly who you are, however you are, whenever you want to be who you are, without Mm censure or criticism. And that, that was something I very much responded to and felt very home when I got here. So I've actually lived most of my life here now at this point, but I love going back to Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities. So.
0: And when you were studying in, at university, um, you won an award for uh, a National College Theater oh, Festival? Oh, God.
1: Correct? Did you research? Yes. How did
0: that come that, about?
1: That was a really pretty special, special thing. Um, when I was a sophomore in college, I, I got cast in a show I was actually recruited to be in it because I wanted to actually be in another show, but the director of the show sought me out and said, I want you to be a part of this. Um, And it was an original uh, dramatic musical about the American presidency called Head of State. And it was directed by a professor named John Ahart, who is still a friend of mine who lives here now, um, who utilized all of our creativity. We all worked together to compile the pieces from history that speeches and things from actual presidents of the United States and compiled them all into this incredible show that used American folk music and some original music. And it was put together in this really interesting, you know, very innovatively staged show. It was called Head of State. And I can't remember exactly how many cast members there were. I want to say 12, but, you know, like cast man, half women and and the parts were gender fluid you know I played John Adams I mean it was very innovative for its time and it won the American College Theater Festival and which gave us the opportunity to go to the Kennedy Center and perform it there which was obviously wow. for any kid the, well for anyone I would love to do that now uh, the most amazing experience because we were fetid and treated like stars when we got to washington dc um we were taken around to the monuments and it was the most exciting thing And to be standing on the big stage at the kennedy center singing and performing was was really a highlight i'm sure for all of us um and it was something that you know for me was, was just a tremendous honor and uh you know Kind of led me to believe that this was definitely the path that I needed to be traveling, so it was a, it was a mm-hmm. tremendous experience,
0: so you were concurrently also uh how did the band come about?
1: well, the band was a little bit after that i was um, I was singing it with a couple of different musical entities at that time uh, a folk trio and a country rock band and I was working at this place called Ireland's at the time, and um, two guys showed up one day, and they said, "We have a band, and we want you to come and sing with us." So I I, I, actually—they wanted me to audition, so I went and auditioned for them. It was a, it was a '50s, '60s rock and roll band called Lonnie and the Lugnuts, and (laughs) and it was a band that was being managed by a very, very big uh, management company called Blithem Limited, which was one of the uh, uh, people who started that was Irving Azoff, who of course went on to tremendous fame and this band yeah, was managed yeah. by them. And so I got hired to be in this band and we were booked. Um, in fact, what's interesting is the bass player of that band who was the Lonnie of Lonnie and the Lugnuts. He's actually a, an incredible bass player named Eric Krogh. He lives in LA now and he's actually in my current band, which is such an incredible circle of life kind of thing. Um, uh. But he he has a, you know, a detailed memory of those years, and he kept records. And we he told me that we were on the road for something like 250, 60 days of the year, uh, you know, when we were working. And we were working for about two and a half, three years. So that was a lot of time on the road. Um, and it was incredible. I, I loved every single minute of it. Traveled all over the Midwest and the mountain states and you know, just it was an incredible experience to be uh, a young person having this experience. It was wild, and it was great, and it blew my parents' mind. <laughs> uh,
0: they're, they're high and that mind. was your first Both band?
1: Are, what was that? Was
0: that your first band?
1: Well, that was my first big band. I was in a couple of smaller bands prior to that, but that was the, it was the first one that had a real identity and management and made good money and, you know, did good shows and traveled around the country. It was the first one that I was in. Yeah, Mm. Great.
0: And was it the band that took you to LA or, or you, you went solo?
1: Well, the band, it wasn't essentially that band, but it was the impetus of that band that drove me to LA because by that point, I felt pretty confident of my abilities as a singer in a band. And I wanted to do more of that. And I also wanted to continue to pursue my acting. And so, uh, I had one friend who was living in L.A. at the time, and she found me a sublet apartment. And so me and the, my boyfriend at the time, we just packed up our little car and our two cats, and we drove out to L.A. I remember I had $300 to my name, and, uh, but I was just determined. And I remember the first night here, I'd never seen the ocean and we drove out to Santa Monica Beach and it was dusk, it was just beautiful. And I remember standing at the shoreline just overwhelmed with a sense of my destiny and a sense of my being exactly where I was supposed to be. And it was an exhilarating, overwhelming feeling. And um, I never regretted that decision. I have been in love with LA since that night. and you know, a few breakups in there on and off over the years before I I wasn't as enamored with it as other times, but it's, it's been a very um, fertile place for me to be who I am. So.
0: Did that go with any parental objection?
1: Oh, probably, you know, but at that point in my life, I was very detached from my family. I, I don't mean in a negative way. I just mean, you know, when, when you're an older child of such a large family, you know, my parents were very occupied with the enormous number of children who were still at home. And so, you know, I was really on my own starting from about 18 and I was making all my own life decisions. And, you know, they didn't really, which is so interesting to me because as a parent now, I, I, I always say to my husband, can you imagine if our kids? were like us, you know, where we just went <laughs> off and did our lives without any any consultation without any, you know, we did not have the kinds of relationships with our parents back in those days that our kids have with us because my husband has an, an older daughter too. And and those our two children are very involved with uh we we've been involved with the decisions they've made in their lives as consultants and um you know just listening to them and giving them feedback that wasn't the way it was for me um, my parents were very detached I, I mean they were detached from my life too I mean they didn't come see my shows they didn't you know they they just weren't involved so when I told them I was moving to LA they were they, I think they were sort of horrified but they really couldn't say or do anything about it they were like why would you move someplace you've never been and I said because I want to and, you know, maybe in some small part there was some grudging admiration, but I, I don't know. You know, I I left home when I got there. I came home for Christmas that year, and then I didn't see them for like three years. Um, I just was very involved in my life and didn't have enough money to come home, and they didn't, you know, they were just ensconced in their own life. And, you know, it was just a different kind of family dynamic than certainly I have with my own kids, so it's kind of interesting to look back on now and realize how independent I was. That goes back to what I was saying at the very top of our conversation where, you know, I was making my own decisions for better, for better, for worse, you know.
0: Is there pain associated with
1: that? You know, there probably was at some point, but no, I mean, I think I, I, there were times where I was kind of stunned by how detached they were and hurt by how detached they were. But, you know, I, 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 got into therapy (laughs) and, uh, you know, I dealt with my stuff and, you know, I forgave them for the parts of their parenting that were, that were lacking. And there were plenty of parts of their parenting that were lacking. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, I think at some point as adults, we all claim our own lives and claim our own decisions and I don't blame them for anything in my current, state of being you know I I look at them as flawed people who did the best they could made lots of mistakes some very much involving me and um, but I think they were basically really good people and they gave me a lot of good things my appreciation for creativity one that has held me in good stead my whole life so I'm very appreciative of that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like part of the, the the part that seems missing or at least lacking a little bit is that a lot of us have a a desire for parental approval.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that um, I was almost um, inured to that because it just it was kind of like it wasn't available in the sense that, you know, I did a lot of things that my parents didn't participate in, you know, some big shows I was in that they didn't come see. And I just kind of, at that earlier point in my life, just kind of girded myself to be self-sustaining. And so there wasn't, not only was there not so much a need for parental approval, I almost rejected it. I almost felt like, I don't, I don't care what you think, you know, I'm going to do what I think I should do and and I made a lot of mistakes as a result certainly in you know the way I can I mean I don't feel like I was completely uh, hatted on how to be an adult in a lot of ways whether it was about money or about relationships or about how to conduct myself I mean there were a lot of missing chips that happened because my parents were detached from my life so there you know I don't think that getting parental approval drove me. I think what drove me was my own need to make a mark in the world so that I could feel that my life had purpose. I felt that very strongly. I still feel that. I still feel that. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so perhaps it came out of some parental stuff, but it felt more like it was my own burning uh, driver throughout my life.
0: Mm. So a man named Robert F. Lyons. Seems to have had some impact on your career. When did you meet him?
1: Um, When I got to L.A., I got into Scientology when I was in Illinois. I had rejected my Catholic faith. I walked away from that, and I was sort of floating spiritually and, and wanting to find something that would make me feel like I was attached to a spiritual idea. And at the time, this was... Many many years ago, before we all knew what Scientology was about, I met a guy <laughs> who was hovering around the theater where I was doing a show and we started going out and he got me involved in Scientology, which at the very beginning seemed like a really great kind of self-help, let's make the planet a better place kind of organization. You know, it was just in a small little house and it was a lot of great kids that were just like the kids I knew in the theater department and it, it felt very different than it evolved into, and as we all know of it now. So when I moved to when I moved to L.A., I, re, I connected with the Celebrity Center Scientology organization here, thinking that it was going to be this <clears throat> mecca of artistic endeavor and artistic people, and. And it really wasn't that. It was just a big building in Hollywood where you could take classes and you could get auditing and you could, you know, whatever. Um, But I did meet Bobby Lyons through that. He was starting an acting class that was started just a couple of months after I got here. So I was one of his first, I was in his first class and I studied acting with him for five years and he was a very, very good acting teacher the things that I learned from him, not only about acting, but about how to give critique, how to analyze and consult work, uh, are things I utilize to this day. Um, uh, he gave me the great gift of teaching me how to teach. I became one of his um substitute teachers. And I had my own beginning acting class after several years of working with him. And all of that helped me a lot to know how to do script consulting and how to critique books and how to, you know, I became very good at that through him. He was a very, very good acting teacher. And during those years, and in spite of the fact that it was connected to Scientology, because he was a Scientologist and is, I think, still, and most of the people involved were Scientologists, it was very much a secular class. It was just acting it wasn't there was no proselytizing going on there um but that did creep in after a while there were there were there were things that 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 um there was mission creep as they say where issues and related to Scientology policies and things started to creep into the class and over time I just decided that I didn't want to be a part of it anymore and um after five years I left and um At that point, I became very immersed in my music career and kind of stopped pursuing acting because that was back in the the 80s when, you know, there was this idea that you couldn't do more than one thing. You know, you were either an actor or you were a musician or a singer and, you know, and I was being told by my management at the time that, you know, I needed to just be identified as an actor and I didn't want to do that. You know, I really missed singing at that point, so... I left Bobby's class after five years and kind of left acting. I got 100% fully immersed in music at that point. And, you know, but Bobby had a very big influence on my life. You know, he and I are not in touch now because, um, as I understand it, he is still in Scientology. And when you leave Scientology, which I left many, 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 many years ago, um, I'm sure people know enough about Scientology now to know that when you leave, you are looked upon, you know, negatively. It's not not like, well, good luck to you and fare thee well. It's not like that. It's like you have betrayed them and you are persona non grata at that point. And um, so I didn't keep relationships with people that I knew back in that era who stayed in Scientology, although many of my very, very closest friends from that time are still my closest friends. And all of whom left Scientology many, many, many years ago as well. So it was in a very interesting chapter of my life, and not all of it good. You know, um, I don't have a positive feeling or opinion about Scientology because I think it it was very destructive to me and a lot of people I knew, and I'm very. Very glad to be out of it, and uh, although I still hear from them all the time, um, I think you and I talked about that's that the other I've day. I, I call it, you know, recruitment by harassment, by stalking. You know, they continue to call and send me mail, and <clears throat> no matter how many times you put them on do not do not call lists, they use different phone numbers every time. It's a very, it's a very, it's just a very strange, strange organization. But mm. that's my Bobby Lyon story.
0: And, and you say you had management at the time. How did you come by a manager?
1: Well, you know, I was getting out at that era. I was very young, and, uh, you know, I was getting out on a lot of auditions. And uh, so I had, you know, just I don't remember how I found this. I don't remember. I, 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 some manager, I met him through somebody else. You know how it usually happens. And, you know, I had agents and managers, and I did tons of auditions. And, I, you know, I got a couple of very small things, and, Toward the end, the manager that I had uh, made some bad decisions related to, you know, he was so sure I was going to get a better job that I turned down a job I could have had and ultimately, you know, decided, I decided we would part ways. And so that was when I made the decision to walk away from the pursuit of acting. I say the pursuit because I really wasn't getting, I wasn't successful in getting work as an actor at that age. You know, I I wasn't... I was doing plays and things like that, but I wasn't getting film and TV jobs, which is what I wanted. And so, you know, it started to feel um, soul-killing. So when I moved out of that arena and moved into the music arena, I felt much more um, energized and excited about what I was doing. So it was a good move at that time.
0: And your your management had... uh, It was specifically acting and not music yeah then
1: it was and then when i moved into the music world uh within a fairly short period of time i i got management in the music world and um you know it was was, a people that you know financed my demo tapes because those were back in the days when everything was analog and you made demo tapes where you'd record four four songs and then you know shop those to a and r departments at record labels in the attempt to get record deals and uh, I was very lucky to have financiers and management and producers, and I worked with some of the most amazing people in the world. Um, I had an incredible band, and we did really, really well. I mean, we got about as close as you can get to hitting the jackpot without hitting the jackpot. Um, we had a very successful regional and local uh, live thing. We played all the best clubs, it was incredibly exciting. You know, it was the dawn of the MTV era we really felt like we were part of something and it was oh my god it was just the most fun ever and I had my own band for a number of years and then I um when that ended I moved into a couple of other musical entities one of which was with a couple of guys who had been Rod Stewart band members and we had our started our own thing and that went that was towards the end of the 80s and I did that for a few years again you know attempting to get record deals and again, not getting them, but having an amazing time and writing a lot of amazing music, writing and recording a lot of amazing music and, um, you know, getting songs and movies and doing a lot of music soundtracks as a vocalist. I was a very busy session singer back in those days. And so, you know, that was all really exciting. And, you know, it was also when I, aged out of that when I realized that, you know, because the music business is extremely youth oriented, and this was pre-digital. Um, and, you know, there came a point where I was just considered too old, and which literally broke my heart. I mean, uh, I mean, truly and literally broke my heart, um, when I finally had to accept that being a woman in my 40s, nobody was going to give me a record deal. And um, it was uh, extremely painful for me at the time. And that was when I started writing books. Mm. You know, that was when I finally went, okay, well, now what Now what do I do? <laughs> and I had been writing all that time. Well, it sounds
0: like there were a couple other steps in between. Say, for instance, you mentioned soundtracks. You did... You, did a, you were a vocalist on a Disney soundtrack, and, and didn't you do uh, De Niro's film, yeah, Jack Knight? Yeah, I had a
1: song in that. Yeah, there were, you know, that was back when I was doing a lot of recording sessions, and I was a session singer, and I did a lot, of, um, a lot of stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with ghosting, which was something that happened back then during the analog days when we didn't have digital autotune and digital magic to fix singers' voices, um session singers would be hired to come in and ghost the voices of famous singers to make them sound better and sometimes they literally replaced oh. portions of a of a vocal with the voices of ghost singers and i was one of those and and I, I can't say the names because I was, you know, basically signed NDA. You know, you couldn't, you, you could not say who you were ghosting for because a lot of people would be upset by that. But um, it was just something we did back in those days. And that exploded into a controversy. I don't know if you remember when Paula Abdul was sued by a singer who, who had ghosted her vocals and claimed that not only were they used as a background to, to make her vocals better, but they actually used her vocals in lieu of Paul Abdul's vocals, so well, this was back in the—I don't remember what year that was. i am want to say the late '80s, early '90s. She sued them, yeah. and I don't re- I, To be honest with you, I don't remember the result of that. But that was when ghosting really came out into the open, because it was kind of a—it was kind of a manipulative thing to do. But nowadays, I mean, now the only thing that's different now is that now uh, singers who don't sing that well are auto-tuned and manipulated digitally to sound far better on recordings than they do in life. But back in those days, they used us nameless session singers to do that. So I did a lot of that too. Um, (laughs) But yeah, when I was doing that, I was also writing uh, screenplays at the time and, and, you know, right at the turn of the nineties, a screenplay that I co-wrote with a filmmaker named Patricia Royce, who was a good friend of mine and somebody who, uh, I co-wrote the screenplay with, and she had a production company up in Seattle that ended up producing this film. And I got to sort of involve all my creative uh, plates in that particular project. I was playing a woman who had been a former singer. And at one point she gets up and sings a song, which was one of my favorite parts of the film. And I co-wrote that song and recorded that song and co-wrote two of the other songs in the soundtrack plus I co-wrote the script so it was it was really an amalgam of all my different muses come to life and it was a very exciting experience and played the festivals and did well but um you know those it was a small independent film so it didn't really crack the code in any major way but it was definitely a great experience and kind of catapulted me more into the writing world afterwards um so I was always very grateful for that and if anyone wants to hear those songs, they're on my SoundCloud page, so. <laughs>
0: uh-huh, yeah. So, Peter Wilkie. Yes. How and when did you meet Peter Wilkie? Well, Peter
1: Wilkie is my husband, and that's a perfect, uh, a perfect time to ask that question, because he was the attorney for that film company. Um, he negotiated my contract with that film company, and he always likes to say, his little joke is, I negotiated myself into the ultimate conflict of interest because we met and uh, fell in love. And eight months after we met, we were married um, and are married still. So I met him wearing while well, he was wearing his hat as an attorney. But after we got to know each other better, I discovered he was an amazing songwriter and singer And he and I have now worked together on a project of his that we're actually resurging right at the moment. He wrote a country musical called Country the Musical that we, uh, I was one of the associate producers we put up in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, this incredible environmental theater piece with his music and book and that was something we did together. That was an amazing experience, and um, we've gotten some interest from people who want to bring it back, so we're, we're pursuing some, we're doing a little research on that now. Um, of course, I've aged out of the role that I was playing at the time, but there's another role that I can play that's the older woman, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be moving into the older woman role now, uh, 20 years later. But oh, um, He's an incredibly talented man, and, uh, and of course, the love of my life so um, I'm always happy to talk about him. Thanks for asking
0: <laughs> that's beautiful so you you had said that that, that now you've begun to write uh, was this where you you had a column in Huffington post
1: yeah i started um, I started my own blog back in two thousand and ten um, and because I felt a tremendous impulse to communicate my thoughts. I was that kind of person who wrote letters to the editor because I was so compelled to express my viewpoint. So then when (laughs) blogging came out, I started a blog and it it did pretty well. And so um, I reached out to Arianna Huffington, who, who was the owner and the founder of The Post at the time. She has long since left. And I sent her a link to my blog and I said, I'd like to write for you. And unbelievably, she wrote me back. I think she's one of Two famous, huge people who wrote me back. The other was Steve Jobs. Uh, He was somebody who wrote me back when I wrote to him personally to complain about some (laughs) Apple product I had and couldn't get service on. And he actually had contacted me back. Not personally, but he wrote me back. Um, But anyway, Ariana Huffington wrote me back and said, yes, I'd I'd love to have you write for us. And she set me up with her main editor and uh, set up what I called my column. I don't know that they considered it a column, but it was, I was considered a contributor. And so for about from 2010 till last year, actually, I had that column and it was incredibly active. And, and I, I, I got a lot of attention from it and a lot of readers and they were very, the HuffPost was very supportive and often put my work on front pages and they were really, um, a tremendous asset to my writing career. But then she left Ariana Huffington left and eventually new management came in and they shut down that program, uh, in early 2018, which was really, really unfortunate. And I know a lot of writers were very, very unhappy and sad about that because it, it, it literally took this incredible, uh, cadre of great writers and just sort of <laughs> closed the door and, uh, and I haven't had anything on them on their site since then. Um, you know, it was, it was ironic because the day that I found out that I was no longer writing for them, I had gone to submit an article. You know, they had portals where you would input your article and you know, it was all done digitally and you didn't have to talk to anybody. And I went in and it was like, literally the door was locked. I, I couldn't get in. I was like, what the hell? So I wrote to my editor, and I was like, what's happening here? And he was like, oh, didn't you get the email? Which, of course, I didn't. And basically, Uh apparently, some email had gone out to all the writers saying, we're shutting this program down. I did not get that email. And um, at the time this happened, when I was sort of unceremoniously shown the door, I had had an article that was on the front page and had been there for days, which was very unusual for them. Typically, you'd have an article up for maybe a day. Um, but this article had been on their front page for several days. And I made that point to the editor of how ironic it was that I was being shown the door while my article, my last article was continuing to be on the front page. And I wrote to the new, uh, editor in chief. And of course she did not write me back. And, um, so I, uh, you know, I, th- I, thought that was a very unfortunate way to, um, treat the writers who had given them a, an incredible amount of product over a decade essentially who had provided a tremendous amount of media for them and um, but that's the way that went so I haven't I haven't written for them since now you know what they said was well now you can pitch just like anybody else you can just pitch an article and which I think I tried once and didn't even get a response to to it so I kind of went nah
0: pitch an article to yeah,
1: us after having been you know, <laughs> You know it was it was just,
0: after being blindsided just, sure the whole
1: thing was ridiculous, so I just I don't even read them anymore um, I wasn't you know, and I'm not the only person there were many many, many writers that were incredibly put off with the way that was handled and you know I don't know I feel like i don't I feel like they lost a tremendous amount of uh, content, really good content from really good writers by doing that but That was their choice, so I don't know how they're doing. Maybe they're doing fabulously, but um, I'm no longer a part of that.
0: Was that experience what drove you into, or or pulled you into novels? No, I had already started writing
1: novels by then. Um, It was kind uh, of—I really started writing novels in earnest about ten years ago. Um, I. I, at that point, had completely uh, done my memorial service for my music career, which took years. It was years of mourning and, you know, uh, painful, painful stuff. And I started writing a book. I'd gotten an idea for my first book from um, a family story. And I started writing it. And then in about, I think, it was literally about 10 years ago, I started writing it in earnest. And I had, I wasn't writing for HuffPost yet at that point. And so concurrent with starting my blog and then concurrent with writing for HuffPost, I was writing my first novel, which um, I self-published in 2014. After about a year of trying to get an agent, a literary agent, because I wanted to go the traditional route, I wanted to get a good publishing deal with a good publishing company. But um, could not get an agent, so I ultimately self-published it in two thousand fourteen, and it did really well. I was very enthused about the self-publishing world at that point, and I, you know, spent a lot of time, money, and energy on promoting it and marketing it and getting it in contests, and it did really well, and got tremendous feedback from it. And a year later, I, I had written a second book which I had adapted from a screenplay of mine, a screenplay that I had written many years earlier that I I got a lot of attention for and had been optioned a few times, but had never been made. And it was a story that I loved, and I thought, I'm not going to let this story die in the vine. So I decided to adapt it into a novel, which I did. And uh, that's my second book, which is Hysterical Love. And i didn 't even shop for an agent that go around I was so I was so still burnt out from the first effort to find an agent. so the second time i just I hired a publicist who was wonderful in helping me launch it, and I launched that book a year later in two thousand and fifteen and it it did incredibly well amongst readers it it got tremendous uh, feedback, positive feedback it it won a few awards but For whatever reason, it didn't do as well uh, in terms of sales as my first book, which I still don't understand because I think it's actually a more accessible, more mainstream story. And I think it's a fabulous story, if I may say so myself. But I'm still planning on doing (laughs) something with it. I don't know. I'll figure it out. Um, And then after that, I took a break for a few years. I, I was then, you know, I was writing for HuffPost. I was doing a whole bunch of other things. And I started writing my cur- the book that came out this year. I took a while to get to that one because the, the you know the time that you have to put into marketing and promoting your books is overwhelming. It it takes so much time. And nowadays, even if you have a, a deal with a big publishing company, it is incumbent upon you to be your own marketer and promoter. Um, Hiring publicist is incredibly expensive, and I've done it twice. And I'm grateful that I did it, but I, I couldn't afford to keep doing it. And so once you get that initial launch done, then you're on your own, and it you know you are constantly beating the bushes, finding new and innovative ways to market and promote your books. Some of which are are successful, some of which aren't. And so I spent the next couple of years really doing that with my first two books. And didn't really start writing my current book until 2016 when I decided to take on a much more dramatic story than either of my first two books. And I really took a lot of time to write this book and I decided I wanted to again, try to get an agent and go the traditional route. So I spent most of 2017 shopping for an agent and, you know, putting the book through rewrites in the interim. Um, and couldn't get an agent interested. Um, I was no. Um, I was. This was during an. You know, all of a sudden, I was informed, unbeknownst to me at the time. And given how plugged I plugged in I am to contemporary culture due to my work with HuffPost and my blog writing and my activity on social media, I was surprised to find out that, as a white author writing a story that included black characters, I was told by every agent who either read the book or heard about it, that they would not be able to sell the book because I was a white author with black characters in my book and that it would be considered or the fear of having it considered cultural appropriation was too high to risk it, which stunned me. I had no idea that this was a thing, you know, at the time. And I thought, you know, yeah, me and my good timing. I picked a moment in our culture where this had become an issue. And certainly I understand it. Um, certainly I get it. Um, there's a terrible misrepresent- or underrepresentation of voices of diversity in all areas of culture. And I totally get that um, diverse voices want to tell their own stories. But I didn't feel this was a story that wasn't mine to tell. It was a story that was, inspired by real-life experiences that I had Um, in a very long-term relationship with a man of color. um, I had always wanted to tell the story from the point of view of both members of this relationship, and I felt it was a very topical, very contemporary, very rift-in-the-headlines kind of story, and that was the story that I told, and so I felt that I was within my rights to tell it because it's a story about an interracial couple. Well, who gets to tell that story, right? I mean, can only one person tell that story? And I, you know, I was, I was, I was really stunned by the responses that I got. Some of which were by people that read the book and said, "This is a really uh, incredible book, really important book," but I don't have the courage to take it on. And I was devastated because I, I thought, "Wow, this is." I, I thought this book would definitely garner the attention of. Uh, the more commercial publishing world. And I was finding that not to be true. So then in early 2018, I went to a writer's conference in San Francisco where I met Brooke Warner, who's the president of a small press called She Writes Press, uh, which focuses on female writers. And I had sent them my work. And even before I met her, she had called me and said, we love your book, we want to publish your book. And I was shocked. they were a small hybrid publisher where writers co-invest. It's, you know, you have to participate financially, and in exchange for that, you get a much higher royalty rate, and you get creative control over your book. But they do curate the writers. They're very selective about which books they publish. So I said, well, I'll come and meet you at this conference. I had already made uh, an appointment to meet with several <laughs> agents at this conference and I wanted to see that through and I remember it was like at some point in the middle it was kind of like a speed dating thing with agents where you got five minutes with each agent and uh, you had an hour to see as many agents as you wanted and about halfway through that I was standing in the middle of the room and I had been rebuffed by every agent I talked to for the same reason that I stated earlier and I stood in the middle of the room with still a half an hour left to go and I walked out of the room and I walked upstairs and I found Brooke Warner doing a seminar upstairs and I waited till she was done and when she came over to me I said let's do it let's go I was done I was done shopping for an agent and done shopping for a traditional publishing deal and that was when 2018 was spent whipping my book into shape and it came out in April of this year so and
0: well it amazes me that what you have to say because I mean that book in particular it seems topical also because the male character is facing accusations that have almost like a ring of me too.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's a very and contemporary story and, um, I took great care to, um, I consulted with a woman that i had gotten to know via my, my column at HuffPost, a New York, uh, woman who is a BLM activist Um, who's very, very politically oriented um, in fighting for social and racial justice. And she was my consultant on the book in terms of the authenticity and sensitivity in writing the black characters. And I relied heavily on her, and she was incredibly helpful. And she loves the book. She absolutely loves the book and feels that I've done absolute justice to the characters in the book that are of color to the issues that impact people of color, men of color in particular. Um, I've had other black readers read it who have validated that her opinion. And so I felt very, um, strong about putting it in the marketplace and not being accused of misrepresenting or misappropriating a story that I wasn't able, or I didn't tell. Well, I was, I was given an absolute thumbs up that I had, um, ably um, reflected truth and authenticity and sensitivity in telling the story. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, these are interesting cultural times that we're in. And, you know, I my response to the lack of representation of voices of color and diverse voices in the publishing industry is you don't solve that very, very real problem by censoring other writers. You solve that problem by creating more opportunities for diverse voices and writers of color by uplifting and, and shining light on their work and their stories and their voices. You don't solve that problem by telling other writers what they can and cannot write. That becomes counterproductive and antithetical to creativity and art. And a great, great many people writers of color that I know absolutely agree with me on that and find it offensive, actually, because they're like, we don't, that's not what anyone's asking for. You know, what we're asking for is equal opportunity, which I 100% agree with. Certainly as a woman, um, women are underrepresented in the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly I understand that as a woman. So, you know, these are issues that are, pervasive in our culture. And so I didn't feel like I was singled out. I just felt that it was unfortunate that this book that I believed so strongly in and, and worked so incredibly vigilantly and diligently to make an honest depiction of a very real, very real, very real issues in our culture would be ignored by the publishing industry. So I was extremely grateful that Brooke Warner had the courage and put her company's heft behind it, and it's been very helpful in getting the book out and getting it, you know, great coverage. So it found its road, and is still finding its road, actually. So I hope...
0: So it, it, there's so much, like, in after the sucker punch, you know, particularly in, in retrospect from what you had to say about, you know, trying to get your dad just one-on-one to say, I love yeah. you instead of I love all, every one yeah. of you. Um, there's much autobiographical in in all of these, it seems.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I I think that every writer of fiction imbues their work with autobiographical aspects, not necessarily of their own life, but of their perceptions, their sensibilities, the way they view the world, their observations of people that they knew in their life. I mean, that's how artists pick up things as they observe the world, they observe their own life, they observe themselves, they observe the people in their lives and the events that happen in their lives. But I always resisted anybody who would try to say, is your work autobiographical? Because it isn't in the sense that if you gave, I always use this as an example, that if you said to 10 people, 10 different writers, I'm going to give you a prompt and each of you go and write your own idea of what, you know, a story based on this prompt. And the prompt was, a father mm-hmm. uh, writes journals and his daughter finds those journals after he dies to discover she, he thought she was a failure. Now that's the prompt of my first book. Well, if you got 10 different people to write that story based on that prompt, you would have 10 very different stories. So that's true. the fact is, is that the the prompt was autobiographical in the sense that um that story came to me through my older sister who asked me because i knew my father wrote journals uh if i had read this one journal because he he wanted us to read them he he thought that we should read them and i i tried but I, i couldn't i didn't um and i said no i hadn't read this one journal well it turned out there was this one journal where he had written about me quite a bit during this one year and it was not flattering, in which he said basically that he thought I was a failure. And to read that after he died was pretty shocking, but it didn't, because I was so estranged from my father emotionally, it didn't impact me as hard as it might for someone who had a normal relationship with their father. I was in a woman's group at the time and I told them the story and 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 mass, they burst into tears, and all of them saying, oh my God, if if that happened to me with my dad, I would have died. I would have been just devastated. And a few men told me the same thing, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting reaction. And I thought, this is an interesting story. You know, I want to explore this. So then I took that real thing, and I wrote a fictional story with fictional characters. Um, So it's not my story. It's it's a prompt from my life that that evolved into a very fictional story with fictional characters some of whom i imbue with characteristics of people that i know people in my family some of mine you know but it's very much a fictional story which is true of both my other two books both of which were prompts from real life that's how i that's how i frame it that you know i i'll get a prompt and then i'll go what if you know what if instead of this, this, and then you run with that story and you let it kind of unfold and tell you what it's going to be. And, um, so yeah, I mean, there's elements of my life in there, but these are all fictional stories, which gives me a lot of freedom. Um, I wouldn't want to write, I'm not interested in writing memoirs. I want the freedom of fiction. I want the freedom to explore Characters and and plot lines well outside the facts and truth of someone's life. So, that's that's kind of how I frame the three books that I've written so far.
0: There's some things that I'm struck by. Um, one of which is your commitment, your determination. You know, where I think a lot of people just would have hung it all up. You know, would, would, is that first heartbreak, be it musical or whatever? There's there are a number of people that I know that would have just said, "Okay, that's that. I'm right. done," and gone on to try something safe, like you know, selling solar panels. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I I, I think but, that I, I think that you know some people look at me under that umbrella and find that very admirable, and I appreciate that. But I think it, you know, I think we are all driven by our own sense of purpose and what, you know, we all want to, well, I do not say we all, because I have a friend who once said to me, I have no ambition. I remember her saying this, I have no ambition. I just want to live life and have fun and be with my family. And, and, and that's true. I can't, I can't look at everybody through the filter of my own sensibilities. But for me, being creative is like breathing. And so it's, it's, you, could, you can look at it from a, a point of admiration or you could just say, it's, it's just who I am, you know, for whatever reason, it's in my DNA. And so when it became clear that I wasn't going to be the next rock and roll star, which was my biggest dream, my most coveted dream, because it's the most exhilarating form of art for me personally, um, I did have a moment where I kind of felt like a blank slate. Like, what am I now without this? I've been singing since I was fifteen years old. What am I now if I don't have this? And it. it mm-hmm. But but what I quickly realized is that as I started writing, because I felt I have to, I have to continue to be creative, that I got a tremendous amount of exhilaration and sense of purpose out of that. So, you know, it's. Um, I think it's about what we're driven to do when we wake up in the morning, what we feel compelled to do. And I always had stories I wanted to tell, you know, when I was writing songs and taking photographs, it was interesting because I was just updating my photography site and I was looking at my banner that you put at the top of it. And, and I say something like, um, I'm a storyteller inspired to find the narrative in everything around me, whether words, music, the smallest of moments or the most amazing sights we see. That's the quote. And I know it's gross to quote yourself. And the only reason I'm quoting that is not to sound pithy, but to, to illustrate that that's really how I see myself. I see myself as a storyteller. So whether it was writing songs that told stories or taking pictures that tell stories or actually writing stories, I just see that as my language, you know, that that's my... Um, that's my... I don't know, that's my language. That's how I convey my principles, my, my morals, my um, sense of righteousness and justice, my view of the world. It's, it's how I feel best equipped to do that. And, and I think in some ways that's burdened my creative career because at times when I was being asked to be more commercial and lighter and fluffier, I wanted to continue to tell my stories. And sometimes that ended up working against me. You know, um, I remember when I was in the latter part of my musical career, the manager that I had at the time got me a meeting with a top guy at a top music publishing company. I mean, big, big name, I will not mention. And I, he had put together a whole thing of my songs and the lyric sheets. And there was this one particular song that was incredibly poetic um, that I had written to, Uh, tell the story of a person who realizes they've lied their whole life and they now want to live a life that's honest. And so the song is basically personifying the lie. The singer is singing to the lie as if the lie is a person. And so it's, it's poetic and it's a little, you know, it's a little, you know, it's interesting. And I remember this guy sitting in his room and it's a beautiful song. It ended up being put in the movie that I did up in Seattle, um, reading the lyrics out loud. And he, he, he literally laughed out loud and said, I have no idea what this means. And he said, do you know what we need from you? He said, do you know the song Pour a Little Sugar on Me? You know." The, and I went, <laughs> uh-huh. And he said, that's what we want you to write. Pour a little sugar on me. And I remember I started perspiring. I got very hot and, and very like I suddenly felt like I couldn't breathe. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> and I, I left that meeting and I said to my manager, I can't do it. I can't write poor little sugar on me. And that's not to impugn it, you know, poor little sugar on me or anyone who writes pop music or, or pop narratives. I couldn't, and I didn't get that deal. And I lost my manager because he said, you're insane. And so I say it, it probably worked against me in trying to create a commercial career, but I couldn't do it. I tried. I tried. You know, and and even it's funny, a very literary friend of mine asked me a a while back, he's a brilliant writer, and he said to me, do you think you could write a book that was just pablum, just, just pop fiction, just commercial crap like Fifty Shades of Grey, but, you know, something that'll just hit the zeitgeist and become viral? And I went, no. I couldn't because I, I'm not saying I couldn't the only way that i can create is if i'm impelled to do so if that muse within me must be heard and i cannot imagine sitting down and trying to write something like that i don't think i could get through the first page so you know that what that you know in response to your comment i mean i think that's you know we're all driven by whatever drives us and that's what drives me for better or for worse and there's good and bad to that you know so
0: that notion of being driven. There's another word that's popping into my head as, as we're speaking now, which is the word passion. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I, I've known a lot of singer songwriters, and and there are a couple things that have also sticking with me about our conversation today. One of which is that few of them have ever had the wisdom to try to seek somebody to to manage them or support mm-hmm. them. So they end up left with their own narrative about whether they were good or not based on what, you know, based on whether they personally got something done, and, you know, and, and how much can you, I mean, I'm struck also by the amount of energy you expended into marketing and doing the things you needed to do to get, to get these things that self published, you know, get things like that known.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess I figured no. if I'm going to create something, I, I want an audience. You know, I was never anyone who wanted to sit in my, you know, dark room in the basement and paint oil paintings that no one saw. That was not you know, I I believe my I mean my I believe that art is my form of communication and so of course every artist I think or not every artist, but many artists are driven. They want their words however they're communicated, whether it's through music or writing or photography or art, they want their words, their voice to be heard. And so you know, you have to take certain steps to be heard. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I just finished reading a book, uh, about a uh, written actually by my publisher, Brooke Warner, that it's a book about writing and it's called write on sister, like write W R I T E write on sister. That's it's focused on women writers and kind of, uh, uh, tutoring them in a way and mentoring them in a way to, to believe in themselves enough to put their work out there. She, she references, Uh, things that are very true, which is that a lot of self negating that goes on with artists about their work. I know because I've heard so many people do it. You know, I've worked with people, collaborated with people who I became frustrated by because, you know, we'd have a great writing session on a screenplay. And then the next morning they would come back and, and hate everything that was written and think it was all crap. And I'd be like, no, it's not, you know, I've always, And and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I've always believed in my work. That's not to say that I don't go... I've always had a tremendous objectivity to my work. I don't know why that is, but I've always been able to look at it objectively. So when I would get a critique or when I would get notes from somebody, I could objectively look at it and go, are your notes helpful or are they just... um, unproductive because I didn't write this the way you want it written. And I felt that I was always pretty good at discerning that. And so I tended to like my work. And so I didn't feel reticent to put it out there. I didn't doubt it. That doesn't mean I didn't think it needed work or that I couldn't improve or that I didn't have much to learn. All of that's true. But I, I think that a lot of artists get caught up in self doubt and, non-starting and um, self-negating. You know, I've worked with a lot of people where they they get real excited about doing something and suddenly you talk to them a few days later and one person said something that was slightly negative and they're off, they're done. You know, they're not going to do that thing. And you're like, no, 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 no. You know, you can't let one bad review or one stupid comment or one careless whisper stop you from doing what you believe in or what you feel is your communication. But a lot of people do, you know, and I think that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's a necessary level of arrogance, although I don't like that word. I always believed my work was worth getting out there, and so I honored it by doing what needed to be done to get it out there. So,
0: Well, here's, here's another take on that. Um, the notion that your parents were too busy to come hear you, Mm -hmm. that the support you didn't get from them didn't stop you. No. You know, I think that there are a lot of lives that are really built around approval. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of ambitions that are stopped by fear of failure. I do too. Uh, That sense that, no, I didn't make it. And one of the things I'm loving about today is to hear how many different times things have collapsed or, you know, managers left or career didn't make it, got close, didn't make it, but that the mission or, or the passion is undeterred.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure where that comes from, but it's definitely a part of my identity, you know, um, a certain relentlessness. And, you know, I, I think it's hurt me too in some ways because I think I've, I've, I've I've had periods of time where I have felt very uh, hurt by the fact that certain things didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. I have felt ignored and dismissed and not seen um, many times in my career. Um, Times when I felt I deserved to be seen, heard, and and advanced and given opportunities I wasn't given. And there were periods of my my life where I took that very personally. Which is ridiculous. I don't think anyone can afford to take those personally. But as I got older, and as I matured, and as I got wiser, and as I got, you know, (laughs) did some therapy and kind of dealt with the the lack of successes in my life as I saw them, um, I had to accept that you know there's a million gazillion people out there all trying to do some of the same thing, right? Like become a successful writer, successful singer, successful actor. There's so many people. And I don't know why some people become successful and some don't. Um, when I was younger, people used to say the cream always rises to the top. But as I've lived my life, I know that that's not true. I have known some incredible actors who weren't didn't get the opportunities that lesser actors got. I've known some incredible musicians and singer-songwriters who were absolutely stunningly brilliant who did not get the opportunities that lesser artists got I know writers and you know in every field of the arts there are people that have become incredibly successful that are less talented than people who you've never heard of so you can't take it personally but you also I personally have no idea why that is because some people might say well the person who was successful did more they worked harder or they but I know that's also not true because I can honestly say I don't think anyone's worked harder than I have towards the goals in my career throughout my entire life and that did not mean they came true that did not mean that they came to the fruition that I was going for so you know is it fate is it destiny is it random is it luck I don't know those are existential questions that I ponder, but I don't have answers to, you know, all I can do and all I will do until the day I leave this planet is continue to do the things that I'm impelled to do and that I love doing and, and hope that maybe one day, you know, I'll have a measure of success that I haven't had yet that I will go, oh, this is, oh, this feels good, you know, this is what I was going for, oh, great, a Pulitzer Prize, okay, cool, you know, okay, now I know what that feels like, that's great, I'm good, you know, I don't know, you know, I I, I think that, you know, it, in some ways, I think that that desire to have that experience keeps me going in a way because I want to experience things I haven't experienced yet. I want to go places I haven't been and, and meet people I haven't met. And I want to experience success on a level I haven't experienced yet. I still do. So I keep going, you know, and, and not in a manic, uh, you know, pathological way, but in a, a way where I feel lucky that I still have stories to tell. I still have stories that I want to tell. So good. I still have material. So I keep going.
0: Well, those questions that that you know feed doubt. I think perhaps one of the lessons is is that they're irrelevant. You know, so what? Okay, great. That's a nice question. Next, yeah. you know, and and there's this other thing that to to couch you use the word arrogance. Yeah. If anything that you're saying today smacks of arrogance, I want like <laughs> bush bushels of it. I want. I want a ton of it. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think, think it should be packaged and given to the to the world. Well, yeah,
1: thank you. I mean, I, I, it's interesting because one of the things that Brooke Warner says in her book, which I think is so true, and I'm very much paraphrasing, is that women, in particular, are acculturated to demure, right? To be to be, um, you know, kind mm-hmm. of humble and kind of, you know, uh, it, it's not it's not an endemic part of female nature to be aggressive and confident and arrogant. And when you are, you're often attacked and criticized for it. And so I think there is that thing that particularly women artists get into that it's like, Oh, yeah, am I not? Oh, I'm not thin enough. Oh, I'm not pretty enough. Oh, Oh, I'm not this or I'm not. And they kind of accept it rather than go, fuck you. That is not true. And I'm going (laughs) to show you how that's not true. That's not in that, I don't think that's really bred into the female psyche. I think that's something we have to um, capture and embrace ourselves. And I, I I think that I loved Brooke's book because she says that, you know, and it's like, I feel like I've done that. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not buying that, you know. Um, and, but you have to be willing to, take the hits. You know, I I think that if there's anything working for HuffPost really gave me, it was a tremendously thick skin because, you know, one of the first articles I put up was an article about gun control. And oh, my God, you can imagine the heat I took for that. You know, um, it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, threats and vile commentary and aggressive attacking. Oh, I mean, it was hideous. And so after a while, you go, well, either I stop talking or I develop thicker skin. And that's always been, you know, I've got the thickest skin known to man, I think, at this point. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's a form of arrogance because it's like, you can't hurt me. Well, you can hurt me, but I'm going to keep going in spite of that. Let's put it that way. You know, because it is hurtful. I'm not, I'm not in, immune to that. It's very hurtful when people say hurtful things to you. Um, and, and I've certainly had tons of people say hurtful things to me, but rarely about my work. Usually it's just about me personally, right? It's like people attack you when you write an article that they didn't like by, you know, maligning your, you know, the way you look or, you know, I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous. Um, yeah. So you just keep going.
0: Well, I'm still hearing the word passion. Every time you say arrogance, I'm hearing the word passion when I think of you. Well, so. I,
1: I think that's a great word. I love that you think of that because, you know, I think that, I don't know. Again, who knows why we, we become the people we become or how we evolve into our worldview or our philosophy of life or whatever way you want to frame it. But, you know, to me, I feel like I don't, I don't subscribe to any religious belief, I am an agnostic, I don't know the meaning of life, I don't know where we go from here, if we go from here, I don't know any of that. But what I do know is that this is the moment that I have right now. I don't know if there's moments before and after, but I know I have this moment. And so I want to create the best possible version of the moment I have in this lifetime by leaving a legacy of something that has meaning, something that inspired somebody or made someone feel good or made someone feel seen or reflected or understood because as a imbiber of art, I have had all those feelings. I I remember lying on the floor listening to Joni Mitchell singing and feeling like she's singing about my life or reading a book where I went, oh my God, I know exactly, she sees me, she feels what I feel Or or a movie or a song, you know, and and I, I remember those moments where art made me feel so seen and understood and a part of something. And so that's what I want to create. You know, I want to create a legacy where if someone goes and reads my books, they'll go, oh my God, that's so something I have felt or wondered about or cried about or, and, you know, so I think that there is a certain passion to that because I don't want to waste this moment that I have, you know, and I, I, if I ever get to a point where I don't want to do it anymore, I won't. And then maybe my moments will be filled with, you know, looking at the sunset or watching a good show on Netflix. I don't know. But right now I want to do those two things plus create art. And so I will keep doing that. And you know, and I think there are many people you mentioned about people who walk away. And I have f- several friends who, you know, they they were very actively artistic in their lives, and they have walked away from it. And they claim to be okay with that. And maybe that's true. And maybe that is true. I'm not saying it's not. But um, and I think if you feel okay about letting go of the pursuit of art or the creation of art or the creation of whatever it was that you were doing. If you feel good about that because you're doing something else or you're just being in your life, I think that's okay. You know, that's gotta be okay. We each get to choose how we live this moment. Um, But this is how I choose to live mine.
0: Well, that makes this a perfect moment to thank you for just a wonderful, wonderful conversation, thank for you. the inspiration you give me. Well, thank
1: you. You asked and, great questions, and you, you obviously you know, did some homework on the things that happened in my life, and I, I very, very much appreciate that, Dan. You're good at this.
0: Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for thank today. You, sir. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate
1: it, and we'll talk again soon.
0: Be sure to join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that celebrates and shares the extraordinary lives of people you might pass on the street every day, unaware of how inspiring their experiences could be if you only knew. Our thanks go out to Lorraine devin Wilkie for her time, thoughts, and introduction to her life and work. Do yourself a favor. Visit Lorraine's website, It's LorraineDevinWilke.com That's (laughs) L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-D-E-V-O-N-W-I-L-K-E.com Unspoken Unsung was recorded at the Conversaire Studio in Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynne Jones for Zapsplat. Two songs, Drowning and I Surrender, were written and performed by Lorraine devin Wilkie.